I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, Yeah. And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. If it had not already become clear how scared Fox is of the Dominion defamation case, it became so last night. As day one of the trial was postponed from today to tomorrow, amid a one-line rumor of a late push by Fox to settle the thing, per the Wall Street Journal, which is, after all, co-owned with Fox by Rupert Murdoch. There was also another tea leaf to read to suggest this settlement talk is serious. The infamous falsetto voice of Mark Levin had promised attacks on Dominion and on the judge in the case, Eric Davis, on his Fox show last night. Levin did not say a word about either of them. Now, I'm like everybody else here, everybody else who has ever worked for Rupert Murdoch and dated Laura Ingram and was asked to co-host a show on MSNBC with Tucker Carlson. I want to see them on the stand under oath weeping, weeping as their dishonest, unscrupulous, amoral, degraded, jaded, corrupt, vile quotes are read back to them. And a Dominion lawyer holds up a big photo of the fired Lou Dobbs and says, perhaps this will refresh your memory. Okay, perhaps that's all a little specific to me, but America could use five weeks of live coverage of Dominion versus Fox, bullshit on trial, carried live on every other cable network and every other streaming service, complete with primetime recaps. Hyperbole and revenge aside, though, it would be an absolutely cathartic experience for this country to have it on the record and for all time that Fox is not a news organization, has never been a news organization, has no journalistic standing, adheres to no ethics, and is programmed not as any kind of reflection of reality, 
but merely as the writers of the classic soap operas of the 20th century or the reality TV shows of the 21st century sketched out their plot lines to grab an audience and hold it hostage with anything, any lie, any distortion, any defamation necessary to retain one more viewer for one more second and to retain one more Rupert Murdoch dollar for one more day. The problem is, such a trial would make little or no difference to the people who most desperately need to process its testimony and learn something. The lunatic fringe for whom Fox has been the equivalent of the addictive cola slurm on Futurama now has a bewildering choice of different flavors and strengths of slurm. Newsmax, One America News, Real America's Voice, One Real America's Newsmax Voice, etc. And if Fox is no longer a strong enough kick for the fascist addicts, the others are happy to offer a more potent and more addictive recipe. There are a thousand places now for Fox viewers to go to hide from reality, to be reassured that the lawsuit is just the deep state's attempt to punish that happy guy, Tucker Carlson, because he dared to show those exclusive January 6th videos that showed nothing, but their Facebook friends said showed everything. And who you going to believe? Real American MAGA Patriot 1234 or your lying eyes. This is not to argue that Dominion should settle, not by a long shot. In point of fact, Fox can lose this case and lose big and probably still survive relatively unscathed, even if it somehow had to fire Carlson and Hannity and Ingram as part of the deal. Carlson and Ingram were also Rands, fill-ins, weekend people, who everybody knew could never carry Bill O'Reilly's water. And yet here we are in a time when you often have to explain to Fox viewers who Bill O'Reilly was. Fox could even use a defeat at the hands of Dominion in court as an excuse to cost cut. They are paying a lot of cash to the primetime lineup, which is somewhat damaged after all this already, and they could dirty up their reputations on the way out, the way they try to dirty up everybody who ever leaves Fox, and virtually dare the Newsmaxes of this world to hire Carlson and Hannity and Ingram while they poach the Newsmax stars or promote the Pete Hegseths and Dan Bonginos and Jesse Waters of this Fox world to the front row for nominal raises. In point of fact, the only fatal damage Dominion, and after it, Smartmatic, could do to Fox would be to go to trial, not settle, and win, and have the jury come back and say, a billion six for Dominion, 2.7 billion for Smartmatic, that's not enough. Let's make it five billion each. And then Smartmatic and Dominion would have to hope that the verdicts and the punishments would hold up on appeal. That is just as important a reason for Dominion to not settle with Fox as is the prospect of an actual trial for the rest of us. If Fox settles, it will not pay that much money. It will not settle for enough money to put itself out of business. And beyond that, Fox was so worried that its attorney, Blake Rohrbacher, had actually apologized over the weekend to the judge, Eric Davis, for misleading him and misleading the plaintiff by hiding the fact that Rupert Murdoch actually has a titled job inside Fox, quote, news, unquote. We understand, the apology read, the court's concerns apologize and are committed to clear and full communication with the court moving forward. I have been fighting Fox since 1997 
and I have not once previously heard them use, on the record, out loud, the word apologize. That's how worried they are about this case. The problem, though, being that Murdoch's general counsel, a man named Viet Din, not only thinks this case will eventually land at the Supreme Court, but quoting the New York Times, Mr. Din has told colleagues privately that he believes Fox's odds at the Supreme Court would be good, unquote. I wonder why he thinks that. All right, Harlan Crow and Clarence Thomas. <sighs> and on top of everything else... Now it turns out, even when Clarence Thomas does disclose it, he's still lying. The Washington Post reporting that the corrupt Supreme Court justice has for 15 years claimed that his family has been getting income between $270,000 and three-quarters of a million dollars in total from a company called Ginger Limited Partnership. The problem is the company has not existed since the year 2006. It was a real estate firm in Nebraska opened by his ex-cult member wife and her family. And whether corruption or mere sloppiness, Clarence Thomas has been so unconcerned with, so disrespectful of this minimal, easy, lip service level of financial disclosure for a Supreme Court justice that he has not bothered to get it right for 15 consecutive financial disclosure filings. The Post points out this particular inaccuracy could be a superficial and meaningless clerical error, but unfortunately it now fits into an extraordinary pattern. Caught in 2011, leaving out his ex-cult member's wife $686,000 in income from the Heritage Foundation that was supposed to be put in, thus being forced by the group Common Cause to resubmit years of financial disclosures, Clarence Thomas didn't disclose it. Caught checking the box for her income marked none, Clarence Thomas didn't disclose it. Caught again nine years later, leaving out the money he got as reimbursements for traveling expenses to teach at the University of Kansas, the University of Georgia, the law school at Creighton University, Clarence Thomas didn't disclose it. Caught selling his mother's home to a Nazi fanboy billionaire, funder of conservative legal groups, constantly putting filings before the court on which he sits, Clarence Thomas didn't disclose it. Caught claiming he still owned part of his mother's home, rather than acknowledging he had sold it the year before, while she still lived there, Clarence Thomas didn't disclose it. Caught taking literally millions of dollars in travel and gift and God knows what else from the same Nazi fanboy billionaire activist Clarence Thomas didn't disclose it. And maybe worse, Clarence Thomas issued a statement that colleagues told him he did not need to report those vacations and other gifts. Which colleagues? Clarence Thomas did not disclose that either. Clarence Thomas is a crook. And the Biden administration and the Democrats in the Senate are letting Clarence Thomas get away with being a crook. At some point, this ceases to be exclusively Clarence Thomas's fault. He is as corrupt and without morals or conscience as anybody in this country. And one of the great lessons of life is that people who act that way tend to act that way time and time again after they have realized they are going to get away with it. 
It is the Democrats in the Senate, the Democrats on the Senate Judiciary Committee, led by its chairman, Senator Richard Durbin of Illinois, who are sitting on their hands while Clarence Thomas gets busy being a crook. It is now 11 days since ProPublica broke the most massive financial scandal in the history of our Supreme Court. The entire Harlan Crow, luxury yachts and private jets, and an 1,800-pound statue of Clarence's favorite teacher story. And all we have gotten out of Dick Durbin is a couple of statements and a couple of tweets and some not very pointed, hell, not at all pointed, warnings to Chief Justice Roberts to clean up his house. As if John Roberts had the guts to bring in a packet of handy wipes to the cesspool that is his Supreme Court. You may now be saying, wait, Durbin and the Senate Judiciary Committee sent the court a letter saying the committee would be conducting an investigation into Harlan Crow's bribe gifts and his gift bribes to Clarence Thomas. Oh, no, he didn't. Durbin said Roberts should conduct such an investigation. All Durbin promised to do was hold a hearing into, quote, restoring confidence in SCOTUS ethical standards. And if you think John Roberts or Clarence Thomas or anybody who merely knows John Roberts or Clarence Thomas is going to testify at that hearing, you're crazy. You're likelier to get John Turley. Durbin phrased it that way to make it sound like he is doing something when in fact he is doing nothing. And he will do nothing unless we light his chair metaphorically on fire. Dick Durbin needs to subpoena Clarence Thomas. Get his sorry, corrupt ass in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee and every camera in this nation and go over these gifts line by line and year by year and dollar by dollar and break him. And you're damned right the Senate could subpoena a sitting Supreme Court justice. As the editor of the New Republic, Michael Tomaski, noted, in 1953, a House committee issued a subpoena to Justice Tom Clark, and it managed to do so for a lot flimsier reasons than Durbin has to issue one now for this giant hundred-piece brass band of corruption on parade called Clarence Thomas. Even Justice Tom Clark was willing to answer committee questions in writing, and today, even legal experts at places like the Cato Institute believe judges at all levels could be compelled to testify to the House or the Senate. Compel him to testify! And before or after Durbin acts, the Department of Justice needs to pursue indictments against Clarence Thomas and Harlan Crow loudly and publicly. It is unclear whether the DOJ can actually indict a sitting Supreme Court justice, but it is clear that when Richard Nixon wanted to force Justice Abe Fortas off the Supreme Court in 1969, his henchman, the Assistant Attorney General, William Rehnquist, found a possible precedent. As my friend John Dean wrote in his book, The Rehnquist Choice, quote, in 1790, the first Congress, which included among its members James Madison and other drafters of the Constitution, had passed a law making it possible to prosecute federal judges for bribery. In addition, Rehnquist found that six years later, 1796, the third attorney general of the United States had, quote, held that a judge could be called to account for unlawful behavior by criminal indictment as well as by impeachment, unquote. On May 1st, 1969, even though it was hardly certain that what he had found was a precedent about prosecuting judges and justices while they were still sitting, as opposed to after they had been impeached and removed from the bench, Rehnquist sent a memo to his boss, John Mitchell, saying 
that this precedent was enough to threaten Fortas with prosecution for taking $20,000 from a financier for, quote, advice, unquote. His choice, prosecution or resignation. Two weeks later, Fortas chose resignation. That, by the way, was the last day the court was made up of a majority of justices appointed by Democratic presidents. And oh, by the way, two years later, Nixon named William Rehnquist to the Supreme Court. And 25 years after that, Rehnquist was so nuts that he added four gold stripes to his chief justice's robes because he'd seen them once in a Gilbert and Sullivan operetta. But back to our current nut job, Clarence Thomas. This is more than just appearances, more than Gilbert and Sullivan's stripes on his robes. Since the story broke two weeks ago, this coming Thursday, this Hitler collector, hate him, love his landscapes, Harlan Crow, has been almost universally described as a Republican mega-donor. It was Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut who pointed out that an article by Think Progress, an article from 2011, underscored that just one of the many legal groups that Harlan Crow finances, the Center for Community Interest, had filed eight briefs to the Supreme Court. Thomas voted on all eight cases, and all eight times Justice Thomas took the side advocated by Harlan Crow's Center for Community Interest. It is blank, naked financial corruption. It has to stop, and Clarence Thomas has to go. And yes, by the way, Senator Chris Murphy is not on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Senator Dianne Feinstein, she's on the Senate Judiciary Committee. By the way, the Senate Judiciary Committee has another judge it needs to subpoena, and the Department of Justice has another judge it needs to criminally investigate, and his name is Matthew Kaczmarek. And it's pretty clear he lied to the Senate at his confirmation hearing, and that is especially important today because it is this sleazebag Matthew Kaczmarek who ruled against the abortion pill. Early in 2017, when he was still just a sleazebag lawyer for a sleazebag conservative group, Matthew Kaczmarek submitted an article to a sleazebag publication he had led while he was still a student, the Texas Review of Law and Politics. And it criticized protections for those who needed abortions and protections for transgender people. Kaczmarek, it was his name on the article, argued that the Obama administration had ridden roughshod over, quote, religious physicians who, quote, cannot use their scalpels to make female what God created male, cannot use their pens to prescribe or dispense abortifacient drugs designed to kill unborn children, unquote. Yes, it's caveman lawyer come to life, but it is not itself a crime, except that when Kaczmarek was nominated for a district judgeship by Trump in 2019, Kaczmarek was required to list that article and all of his published work on a questionnaire required by the Senate Judiciary Committee, and he left that one off for some reason. He left it off because as it was being readied for publication, he suddenly told the editors to take his name off it and put others' names on it. In short, Matthew Kaczmarek, who just ruled that the FDA's drug tests of two decades ago were dangerous and wrong, even though they have since proved for two decades neither dangerous nor wrong, perjured himself to the Senate, should be impeached and removed from the bench, and should go to prison. And once again, we need Dick Durbin to step up here. I understand he's composing a tweet as we speak. 
on this edition of Countdown. Well, here it is. Finally, a Democratic House candidate is going to use the stench of his opponent's association with Marjorie Barney Rubble Green as a campaign issue in a congressional race 1,845 miles away from Marjorie Barney Rubble Green. Speaking of campaigns, Nikki Haley's bid for president has raised $11 million. Oh, sorry, they added wrong. Make it $8 million. And suddenly she looks like a dope. Which, by the way, she is. Is that a possum in your baseball television booth or are you just glad to see me? And the kind of practical everyday advice you are just not going to get from any other podcast. What to do, whether it is at the World Series or at a Little League game down the street from you. What to do if you are asked to throw out a ceremonial first pitch at a baseball game and you want it to go well. Believe it or not, there is a secret life hack here. That's next. This is Countdown. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Uh, you, you know, this is Countdown with, uh, you know, Keith Olbermann. This is SportsCenter. Wait, check that. Not anymore. This is Countdown. With Keith Olbermann. In sports, from 1953 through 1982, Jim Woods broadcast Major League Baseball games for the Pirates, for the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Giants, the Cardinals. He was so good at it for so long that he lasted from the time 
when the big broadcast was a network radio game of the day to the time when he was the play-by-play man on cable on the USA Network Thursday game of the week. And in 1972 and 1973, Jim Woods did the games of the Oakland A's. The team won the World Series both seasons, playing in the Oakland Coliseum. And I mention all this. I mention the great Jim Woods because he was known by and almost exclusively addressed by a nickname, Poss. It was short for Possum, originally referring to his haircut. And last Friday... Baseball fans nationwide discovered that in the same press box in which Jim Possum Woods announced games for the Oakland A's, there is now a real possum living in the wall of the visiting team television booth. Seriously, the Oakland Coliseum, where sewage has flowed freely through the dugout, but which ownership expenditures have not, has its own in-house possum. And Friday, this possum, defying all known rules of animal decorum, relieved himself inside his own den. And the smell was so bad that the crew of the visiting New York Mets chose to use a different TV booth. But that smell, are we sure it was the possum? Or it was the cheap A's owners trying to make the place so bad that baseball would let them move the franchise to Las Vegas? Nancy Faust. Meanwhile, a little bit more poignant confluence of sports and animals. It's Boston Marathon Day, but for some of us, the highlight has already taken place. At a downtown Boston park yesterday, the lives of the official dog of the marathon, Spencer, and his niece, Penny, were celebrated. For a decade, Spencer and his humans, Rich and Dory Powers, had greeted the Boston Marathoners at mile three. Spencer, a golden retriever, held a Boston strong flag in his mouth, and runner after runner would delay their race to take a picture with him. Some years they were lined up, waiting to take a picture with him while they were running the race. Spencer was 13 when he died of cancer in February. His niece Penny died not long after that. And yesterday came the memorial. Friends of the Powers family hoped a couple of golden retrievers would show up, maybe a few dozen, with their humans. In fact, the New York Times estimates the number of dogs at the memorial totaled 250. Rich Powers planned to be at his usual spot at mile three for the 2023 marathon. No Spencer this time, sadly, but he had lots of friends at the memorial yesterday. The Times noted a few of them by name. Will, Sammy, Mandy, Cather, Lucy, Frank, Flynn, Lou, Kona, River, Miko, Clementine, Lily, Cedar, Chester, and Maple. R.I.P. Spencer. Still ahead on this all-new edition of Countdown. This happens maybe 10,000 times a year in this country. I got the life hack that let me avoid the embarrassment that must happen in 9,900 of those 10,000 times. How to throw a successful ceremonial first pitch. All you have to do is cheat. I'll explain. First time for the daily roundup, the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. The bronze, Nikki Haley. Boy, was it a big story when her presidential campaign revealed it had burst out of the gate 
by raising $11 million. Yeah, actually, not so much. Literally, not so much. The campaign transferred $2,700,000 among three different campaign subcommittees and counted all of it going out and coming in. Counted all that money twice. So Haley raised $8.3 million, not $11 million. And ordinarily, $8.3 million would be a great start, except when it turns out you artificially inflated the number, something not even Trump does. How stupid is this, Nikki Haley? As a side note, stick a fork in the small man in high-heeled shoes, the best-heeled of Ron DeSantis' supporters, Florida's Thomas Petterfee, worth about $26 billion, says he will not be donating any money to a DeSantis campaign because the candidate seems to have lost some momentum. You think? Because, he went on, of his stance on abortion and book banning. DeSantis is too far to the right for this guy, Petterfee. The runner-up, Marjorie Barney Rubble Green. Finally, finally, a Democratic candidate will make her part of his campaign, even though he is in Arizona and she is in Georgia. Andre Cherney, running for the Arizona House seat, now held by David Schweikert, tells Politico he will emphasize that Schweikert took a campaign donation from Green's committee. $2,000. One hopes he hits Green for being not just a hallucinating fascist, but for being a cheap hallucinating fascist. Here's $2,000. It's as high as I can count. But our winner, Trump Jr. Oh, that terrifying moment has arrived when you realize the monster you built is no longer listening to you. The magas went nuts when Bud Light featured a trans person on a can of beer because beer is the one way they can tell themselves they don't want to change genders or wear a dress or are gay. Junior took a moment off from his campaign, you know, things go better with Coke, to tell them to not boycott Anheuser-Busch and Bud Light and the 32 different Anheuser-Busch brands because Anheuser-Busch was one of the top corporate Republican donors. And the MAGAs went nuts. One wrote, Trump's confirmed traitor status. Another, more proof that DJT is not going to save America. A third says Junior is responsible for, quote, a master class in becoming a rhino. Kiss a company's ass despite them doing stuff that pisses you off because they give your side's politicians money. Junior Trump Junior. Hey, Dondi, better read up on how that French Revolution turned out, because this is how it started. Today's worst person in the world. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! 
Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to $1,500 again sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in Ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park that's 1-800-GAMBLER Still ahead on Countdown, I'm not big into advice here, but if one situation befalls you, one particular situation, I have your game plan next. First, in each edition of Countdown, we feature a dog in need. You can help every dog has its day and to devour California. And it's not merely that we have businesses that often make money killing dogs. It's that they can be this unfeeling about it. They are ready to kill two-year-old Anastasia because she's, quote, aggressively fixating on food. Even though one look at Anastasia's photos and her videos show, she is terrifyingly underweight and malnourished. Fixated on food. Good God. Anastasia is said to be sweet and easygoing and needs a foster in the DeVore, California area. Someone who will feed her after a rescue saves her from starvation followed by execution. You can find Anastasia on my Twitter feeds. I thank you, and Anastasia thanks you. To the number one story on the countdown, and my favorite topic, me... And you'd be surprised how often this happens. But literally 10 days ago, I was asked for advice by several people about to do this. The kids of the great New York Mets baseball announcer, Bob Murphy. And they wanted to know how to go about throwing out the ceremonial first pitch at a baseball game. I don't know what the odds actually are that you will ever be asked to throw out a ceremonial first pitch at a baseball game not counting spring training and the postseason, and not discounting doubleheaders. There are 2,430 Major League Baseball games played every year. There is not always a ceremonial first pitch before each of them, but the number seems to grow annually. Throw in the minor leagues, and there are roughly 9,630 professional games a year. I don't know how to begin to count all the college games and even high school or other amateur games where they start with somebody throwing out a ceremonial first pitch, but I don't think that 10,000 ceremonial first pitches a year is off by a crazy amount, which means in 10 years there are 100,000 of them, and all of a sudden your chances of getting to do this or having to do this quickly get wildly better 
than your chances of winning even a small prize in a lottery or a free ham somewhere. My number first came up on September 4, 2006. I was on the Staten Island Ferry, one of the most underrated transportation experiences in the world, by the way, going to see the old Staten Island Yankees played in the New York, Pennsylvania League. My cell phone rang. It was the general manager of the team who had given me a press credential for that game because, yes, I was and am too cheap to spring for a $12 baseball ticket. The general manager asked me if I wanted to throw out the ceremonial first pitch that night, and I kind of had to say yes because I was saving $12. So I said, sure, and he said, great. And after we hung up, I briefly thought my best bet was to jump off the Staten Island Ferry and take my chances swimming back to Manhattan. Consider it. The odds that you will someday throw out the ceremonial first pitch at a baseball game may be small, but the odds that you will do so and be any good at it are even smaller. You will be asked to throw a baseball from a distance of roughly 60 feet with your arm on a straight line to a professional catcher while all the fans watch and often while all the players and cameramen and TV cameras watch. And ultimately, it does not matter if it is 50 fans or 50,000. And whether the cameras are Fox and ESPN are two friends of yours with old iPhones or two enemies of yours with old iPhones, you will get that rarest and most disturbing of sensations. Not only that you are being watched, but that you are the only thing being watched. All these thoughts played through my head that Labor Day so long ago, followed by memories of the last time I actually tried to pitch, eighth grade. I did not get anybody out in the eighth grade. I did not throw any strikes. I did not get all of my pitches even to reach the catcher on less than 31 bounces. I was an okay hitter. I had surprising power. I was not a pitcher. And bluntly, since the eighth grade, I had only gotten worse. The next set of thoughts was a quick, vivid, personal replay of every bad ceremonial first pitch I had ever seen. It hadn't happened as of that day on the way to Staten Island, but the one in New York with the rapper Fitty Scent, that may come to your mind. That's where Fitty Scent got on the mound before a Mets game, and he let her rip, and off went the ball at an angle of 50 degrees. The call-me-maybe girl got a first pitch in Tampa, literally spiked the ball, as did Mariah Carey in Japan, as did basketball's John Wall in Washington. Actor Jordan Leandre took the mound at Fenway Park in Boston, in front of a line of former Red Sox pitchers there for a reunion, and disaster struck. Not only did he overthrow the catcher by 20 or 30 feet, but his pitch ultimately hit the team photographer in the groin. These and other first pitches gone bad, all of them on video somewhere, will loom up in front of you like the specters of dead people to whom you owe money. At roughly this stage in my 2006 panic, my phone rang again. It was a former major league pitcher, a friend of mine, and within moments I had explained the mistake I had just made, and he said to my surprise, easy fix. And I said, I'm about to jump off the Staten Island Ferry, and he said, very easy fix. First thing, he said, as soon as you get to the ballpark, get a baseball. Get the baseball, get their baseball, ask them for a baseball, steal a baseball, buy a baseball. And every moment you have that baseball, take your fingernails and just kind of pull up on the red stitches. Just try to loosen them with your fingers. It will seem as if nothing is happening. 
But if you just pull at those stitches with your nails in 10 or 15 minutes, essentially what you'll have is a scuffed baseball. And I said, nah. And he said, why do you think I threw so many first pitch strikes in my starts in my home ballpark? Because I got the ball and pulled at the stitches. Then they changed the rules on me. But trust me, if you do this, it will drop like a stone. It will drop in front of the catcher like it's Mariano Rivera's cut fastball. I sighed. I said, all right, what else? He said, do not, under any circumstances, actually go up onto the mound. He sounded stern and annoyed and as if he had been annoyed for decades. You are not a pitcher. You are not used to throwing off an irregular sloped hill. All you can do from on top of the mound is fall off the top of the mound. Just go to the very front. We call it the skirt of the mound. Think skirts. You're far enough away. You're standing on the mound, sort of. Nobody's going to criticize you. Do not die on that hill. Well, that made sense. Anything else? What happens? He asked rhetorically and pleasantly. What happens when you see a ceremonial pitch hit the ground or drop in the dirt in front of the catcher? I replied, everybody goes boo. Exactly, he said. What happens when you see a ceremonial first pitch go over the catcher's head? I replied, everybody laughs. Which do you prefer, he asked. Do you prefer to be booed or to get a laugh? He did not wait for my reply. Aim at the catcher's head. Worse things happen, it goes over his head, you get a big laugh. You can laugh with them. Plus, if you have been picking at the stitches, when you aim at the catcher's head, about 10, 15, 20 feet before the ball gets to him, the ball will drop like a stone for a strike like your Mariano Rivera, and they will cheer you. And those were his instructions. Actual professional major league pitcher. Pitched in a World Series. Immediately get a baseball, doesn't matter which one, pick at the stitches, never go on to the mound, and aim high. Fifteen minutes later, I was in the beautiful Staten Island ballpark with its startling vista of Manhattan and the westernmost edges of the Atlantic Ocean, and within seconds of getting on the field, I had accomplished the first task. I found a ball just sitting there in the third base dugout, and immediately I grabbed it and began pulling at the stitches with my fingernails, and of course, nothing happened. Two hours to game time, and I had people to say hello to, and things to see, and food to buy, and yet I kept picking at the stitches with my fingernails, and within minutes I was firmly convinced my, quote, friend, unquote, had played me, just to see if I would be stupid enough to actually pick at the stitches with fingernails that could not possibly alter those stitches in the trial of 10,000 years. As the time for the first pitch neared, life itself accelerated. Before I knew it, I was walking out from the dugout with the Staten Island catcher Francisco Cervelli, who later made the majors and was briefly a Yankee fan favorite, and then in Pittsburgh, too. And I said to him, be prepared. I'm going to aim high so they laugh when it flies over your head. He backed up to the plate. I walked to the mound and did not go on it. I was still picking at the stitches on the baseball and swearing oaths of vengeance at my pitcher friend. Suddenly, I saw 10 million people staring at me, even though there were only about 1,500 of them actually in the ballpark. I made a stilted and awkward wind-up of a sort. I concentrated on hitting my catcher, Cervelli, in the head with it. 
The ball came out of my hand with surprising ease. It shot directly towards the catcher's helmet, and as God is my witness, 15 feet from the plate, the damn thing dropped like a stone and thunked into Cervelli's glove for a perfect strike. There were laughs of surprise. Many of them were mine. There were some roars of approval and even applause. I stood stunned and motionless. The catcher, Cervelli, was running towards me while laughing, and when he got to me before he handed me the baseball as a souvenir, he looked at it quickly and then up at me, and he said, You've been picking at the stitches. Good job. I've done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. Here are the credits. Most of the music was arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel, the Countdown musical directors. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray. And it was produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olerman theme from ESPN2, and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc. Musical comments by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was Richard Lewis, and everything else was pretty much my fault. So that's countdown for this, the 832nd day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Don't forget, keep arresting him while we still can. The next scheduled countdown is tomorrow. Until then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, Yeah. And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.